0: bandwidth for changelog is provided by fastly learn more at fastly.com we move fast and fix things here at changelog because of rollbar check them out at rollbar.com and we're hosted on linode cloud servers head to linode.com slash changelog this episode is brought to you by rollbar rollbar is real-time error monitoring alerting and analytics that helps you resolve production errors and minutes And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar. And Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale and Literally, the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it.
1: Like we we need to have that
0: visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. All right, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com/changelog. Once. Again again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, at changelaw.com/live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com/community. Follow us on Twitter; we're at jspartyfm. And now on to the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's JS
2: Party. I'm K-Ball, I will be your host, and I am super excited about this episode because I get to pick the brains of two incredible experts in the Node community talking about Node project architecture and structure and how we deal with all of this in the Node world. So let me introduce my panelists for the day. First off, Michael Rogers. I have not had the pleasure of being on a show with you. Welcome.
1: Hey how's it going?
2: Yeah, it's good. I'm super excited. And then second, one of my favorite co-panelists, though they're all favorites, so I say that every time, uh, <laughs> Farasa Bukubi DJ. <laughs> hey, K-Val. right, so let's kick this off just a little bit of context. The inspiration for this show, I, I don't spend that much time in the Node world. I mostly work on the front end in JavaScript and in the back end I do Golang and Ruby and Python and all these other things, but I haven't done as much Node. Um, I was starting a new project recently that made sense to be a node, started going and said, holy smokes, I have no idea what the right way to structure this project is. How should I be laying out my folders? How should I be decomposing things? Like, what's the norms? And went to my favorite friend Google and found that there are many, many opinions and very few standards. And so I thought this would be a good subject for a conversation. So here we are. Maybe let's start off by just talking about what we might mean by project structure, and we talked about this a little bit before we went live, but I'm going to throw it out to either of you to to take on. like what are the dimensions you think about when you think about how you're going to structure a project?
3: I'll, I'll go. Uh, I mean, just some obvious things are so I, one thing I always look for is you know what version of JavaScript is this project using? So that's a pretty important decision for a project. So it's like, you know are we going to put Babel in here or not? One thing I noticed right away is usually how much into sort of organization? Is this person who's running this project? Like, are there lots of folders with subfolders and subfolders and subfolders inside? Or is, it, is everything just in one, you know, in, in, in the top folder or maybe just one layer? So it can mean a whole bunch of different things. I actually don't know how, you know, what part of this structure we actually want to focus on here in this, in this show.
1: So why don't we put it this way? Like, you're starting a project, right? Like, what are the steps that you would go through in, in order to create that project? Before we get into that, I think that, like, me and Pharos just share too much kind of history and aesthetic things in common that we're going to skip over a bunch of really obvious stuff if we don't like actually get into it right now. Like the idea that like smaller modules are good <laughs> is like, like we would never like, that's not controversial between us. and we wouldn't mm-hmm. get into it unless like we, I haven't explicitly talked about it, I think. So I, I think that like both of us like tend to write smaller modules. And these are modules that like do something predictable. Like they take an input and they do something predictable and they they give you an output for the most part. There's not like we don't write a lot of plugin systems. We don't write a lot of things where you pass it in and it mutates that thing and gives it back to you and then you you sort of stack those up into a plugin system. We don't tend to write things like that and and I think it's fair to say that we we tend to gravitate away from frameworks and libraries that do do that. Although sometimes it's not entirely possible. I can't think of a single module I've written that had like a configuration file that was loaded or anything like that. Maybe Ferros has, has had to do that before.
3: No, not, not really.
1: Yeah, I mean, even your, even your linter is just standard JS. So,
3: <laughs> By the way, this whole conversation, I just realized, we're, we're also assuming that we're talking about modules here and not uh, apps, like you know, end users are creating.
2: So that's a really interesting set of things because those conventions do vary by ecosystem. So one of the things I've been learning a lot recently, I've been learning about the Go world, and every Go programmer that I've worked with, they set up a config file and how their config is going to be read. And they've got all that, that's a thing that is normal and expected and you're doing things with config. And I was like, oh, you mean you don't just do CLI options and environment variables? And they're like, what? So there are a lot of assumptions that are kind of baked in. So one thing that I would challenge the two of you as folks who have a deep background in Node is to like, say, okay, what are those underlying assumptions that?" node developers who've been working in node for years just have so that someone who's newer coming into the node ecosystem might not be aware of and, and sort of put those out there for them
1: so i think a big difference to note here especially because most people come from some other language or community and come into node i think it's important to note that like node has the best tools for publishing and depending on modules which influences the kinds of patterns that you can adopt like one of the reasons why things like that happen in the Go community is because Go has the single worst set of tools for publishing and relying on modules. Like that's not controversial. Like it is openly bad. They've basically admitted it and they're not really going to fix it. I mean, maybe they will. But like right now, it's just very, very bad. I deal with Go like a lot, actually. So like I'm not I'm not saying this is like from the point of view of somebody who never touches it, like half of what my company does. is like in Go, more than half probably. It's just not, there's no good tooling. So they will adopt patterns that work around the lack of tooling. Whereas in Node, like you really get to rely on that tooling. And in fact, if you're running something that is only going to be in Node and not in the browser, you really get to rely on that tooling. Like one of the problems with the browser is that, you know, relying on a big dependency chain increases your bundle size and and that's problematic. So you do have to sort of manage how many dependencies you're taking in. In Node, it's much less of a problem. You know, some serverless environments you're going to worry a little bit, but even that, you know, you're talking about you wanna keep it below like 20 megs, not (laughs) below a megabyte. So you're very free to rely on modules. You're not gonna be um, asked to resolve um, conflicts between different versions of the same module being depended on by different libraries. It sort of solves all that stuff for you. There's a central registry where everything is just available by name. It's all like very easy and the whole publishing and flow for relying on a module is very easy. So from that point of view, when I'm looking at building a new application, I usually actually don't start with the application. I think about the application and what the hardest problems are and how I can break those into like basically modules that only do that hard thing and not everything else.
3: Yeah. You know you know what? Just to add to this, there's a great thing Substack wrote about this, which is I'm pretty sure he wrote this. It's something along the lines of like when you're trying to build an application, think of like what modules, if they existed, would make building this application trivial. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And so then, then when you do that, then you can just go and build those modules. And then your application is just this like glue that pulls them together and this ugly like hundred lines of glue, which just connects all the all the modules <laughs> to do mm-hmm. the thing.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes like, you know, I'll, I'll start to think about this and it's like, well, I need that and then that needs this and then that needs this. And so I start by writing this thing that is like so far away from the application, but I know it's going to be needed for a thing that is needed for that application. Your process is you shave yaks. No, no, no. I mean, like, it's a mistake that I see people make is that they try to solve a very hard problem embedded in this big application stack with a bunch of other things that might happen. And so like, one of the reasons why this actually, it's much faster to develop this way, I think, is because you're, you're taking the hardest problems that you're going to, to run into. And you're sort of saying, okay, I'm going to go solve that. I'm going to solve it in isolation. It's going to have tests and I'm going to know that it works. And then when I go to integrate that into my application, where all of this other environment and state is happening, I'm only worrying about where and how to wire that up. I'm not worried about solving the problem and also dealing with all the other problems that my application may be like, forcing into that environment.
3: Yeah, and if you can do that really well, then you can also avoid sometimes a lot of the difficulty of testing that code. Like A lot of times, I th- think people end up reaching for mocks to like test their code because it's embedded inside of a big application, and then the way they wrote it assumes that they're going to be able to, you know, they're going to do some HTTP request, or they're going to read some file off the file system. And then now in order to test that code, they have to fake the file system or fake this HTTP server. When simpler way to do this would be to just say, like, why don't we take this code and put it off over here in its own repo with its own tests and assume nothing about like how it interacts with the environment. So try to avoid like putting in any assumptions about the IO it's going to do and uh, make it sort of purely like a stream or or a, a callback interface or something like that. And it just have it do its thing, you know, in, in purity. And then you can test that really easily. That's a huge simplifier for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that like we we should probably talk about GitHub has really reduced the overhead and npm have really reduced the overhead in like, you know, creating new packages and publishing them. But there's like a ton of tiny things that I think people like me and Faros will do that even reduces further the load on creating a new package, right? Just little things like you can... Configure npm globally for some default settings like your author name and your license and a bunch of other stuff So then when you go to create a new package you type npm init dash y and you just get all of that in a package JSON and you don't have to do any extra work.
3: Dude, I didn't know that. Are you serious? What? I didn't know that. (laughs) No Yeah, you're assuming I know that that's crazy. Uh, What I do is I I do CP dash R an old project to a new project (laughs) And then I literally copy my old project to a new project and then I do a find all and replace on the
1: old name to the new name. It works great. Okay, okay. So this is going to save you a lot of time because this this just sets up the package json. Then I have a I have a repo called boiler that is all of that, but it none of it is project specific and none of it has a project name in it. So any files like .gitignore I, we can get into this later, but I have like now I have a GitHub action that automates the the whole release process. so that's in there just by default now. So all these things that like don't really need a package name that can just be copied over into any new project, those do just get copied over. There's also, like, I think, a default test in there. So yeah, so I do cp dash r dot dot slash boiler because all my git repos are in the same directory. so dash r boiler slash star into the new one. But for the npm file, um, you want to do init. Another really cool thing is, um, so after you get init and after you do your first push where you're tracking the remote branch, run npm init-y again, and it'll fill in all of the repo information for the remote repo as well. Because like copy, like figuring out where those go is like really annoying.
3: I just use find and replace for that, you know? <laughs> 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 That's actually, this is a good tip. This is this tip. like
2: pro tips node specific this is awesome
3: i have some other pro tips but i did not know this pro tip yeah that's that's a good one
2: awesome so can i replay back a little bit of what i'm hearing and make sure that i'm interpreting it correctly as the uh relative node outsider here so you almost think about things in some ways the same way like in an analog to how like functional developers will think about pure code and not pure code right so you'll separate out those modules that are solving hard problems and try to make them as pure as possible so they aren't interacting with the environment in different ways they're not depending on things test those in isolations build them up as modules and then plug them together into your application Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating and are those modules then so many of those it sounds like are public open source if you're working on like a private project for someone how do you deal with managing that? Do they live in the same repo or they are still a separate repo and you use like a private registry or?
1: So it depends on the problem, right? Like if it's a fairly generic problem that isn't working with any proprietary information, I don't know why you wouldn't just make it a public module. It's not like, um you know, like outside people solving bugs in your software is a good thing. So <laughs> there's no reason not to make that public unless it like contains some like proprietary information. And usually it, it doesn't. Usually like there's a bunch of generic problems and how they fit together is the proprietary thing. So yeah, I mean, I, I do pretty much everything publicly. But um, yeah, if you had to do it privately, then, then yeah, your, your, your company or your uh, consulting business or whatever would have a flow for that, I'm sure.
3: Yeah. One thing that's cool about isolating modules in this way too is that if you end up learning later that this, this module, like the way that you solved it is really gross, then all the ugliness and grossness and hackiness is contained it can't spread across the code base it's literally in a separate place so it's like lower risk almost to it's like less can go wrong the contagion is like it can't spread as easily yeah yeah and then if you get the api design right then you can even like replace the implementation Like make a different module or update it with a completely different implementation but keep the same api and so it's nice because yeah as long as that api surface is pretty small then it's really easy to just throw that module away and replace it with a better one if a better one comes along or if you want to rewrite it later and it's it's a lot easier when it's in directly in your big app repo for like the assumptions and the problems with it to spread and for people to reach in and do like change internal things assume a bunch of things about it whereas if it's like this no no i'm using this module i'm consuming it i I use its public api like it's the interface between the two is like really narrow and and small that makes sense
1: yeah, yeah. And and um, I mean, one, one way to kind of measure this is that for most of these these modules, I will add 100% test coverage. Because when you break off a problem like this, it's actually, pr- and, and you've just written the solution, it's actually pretty easy to get 100% test coverage. It's usually like a couple little tests that you add at the end of the test that you're going to write anyway, to really get full coverage. And then if you just add that into the workflow, you kind of maintain that. It's really easy to maintain that over time. Whereas a big project that didn't have 100% coverage is like almost impossible to get to. It's just such a pain. Another quick tip here too, NYC has this giant <laughs> command to run and require 100% coverage everywhere. It's so long that I actually like mess it up and forget it all the time. So I wrote an NPM package called hundreds that you just say hundreds and then your test thing its uh, to command line utility and then it will just require 100% coverage. So if you put that into like, you know, your GitHub action or Travis or whatever kind of CI that you're using, now your tests just actually fail if they don't get 100% coverage. So it's the test themselves and then also the coverage check. So then when you're getting pull requests and stuff like that, if, if the coverage drops at all, you'll see it and the test won't pass and, and they know to add it.
3: I love that. You're basically using NPM to post your aliases, your shell aliases.
1: Yeah, yeah, because then you can run npx on them, too. So
3: uh, That's really cool. I, I should do that. I think
1: that's actually a shell script, by the way. It's not It's not even a Node script. Like hundreds, I think it's literally a shell script.
3: Wow. <laughs> I, I should do that. I have, I have three shell scripts that I use to publish uh, really fast. They're quite handy. I have like one called patch, one called minor, and one called major to publish like patch, minor, or major new versions of modules. And I'm sure other people have this too, but it's super handy. It it like lets me do everything I need to do to do a release properly in one step. This is obviously only uh, applicable if you're working on a module and not on an app. But it's, it's so handy. It's like if you ever see certain NPM authors and you're like, how do they publish like 15 new versions of different packages like today. Like, what, what are they doing? It's actually not that. It's like, I run one command. It's really not. It's not hard.
1: So I'm going to go a step further, actually. <laughs> so I don't do manual releases anymore, ever. <laughs>
3: right, right, right. This is almost as good as that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Every new project is automatically released with the GitHub action. And there's this GitHub action that I wrote called merge-release. And what it does is um, every time that it runs, so, so you put it like after all your test path and everything. But every time that it runs, it looks at the current, um, Git hash and the last published Git hash, and then all of the metadata in there. And if feet or feature is at the beginning of one of them, then it will bump the minor. If breaking in all caps is anywhere in the commit message, it will bump the major. <laughs> um, and everything else is just a, a fix, it's just a patch release. And so it, it does this like really big, it's actually kind of hard to, to get all that information to do that round trip. So I wrote it all up in this GitHub action. And that's what I use like pretty much everywhere now. So you just you add your npm token into the secrets whenever you set up a, a new project repo, and then now just every successful merge into master where tests pass, it's just getting published. Which is another reason why I've been pushing on getting 100% covered so much too, because then you can be a lot more confident in those releases when they go out.
3: This is interesting. I, I, this is definitely more even telling me about this approach you've been doing for a while now, the 100% coverage and all this stuff. But I, I've I've been a little afraid to sort of to take away that last human sanity check of one of the things I really like is. Actually, you, you should appreciate this, Michael. Like, I can add GitHub contributors a lot easier if I know that I still have you know a, fewer, a smaller set of people, which might just be me in some cases, have the ability to do the NPM publishes. So I can add like 10 people who just barely did it, you know, did some small contribution to GitHub. And then, you know, I can see whether they're going to, you know, wh- whether they're going to do good work or not. And I don't have to be afraid that, oh, I just turned over the keys to the kingdom and they can, you know, now deploy malware to millions of people. With this automatic approach, you do kind of have to now treat the GitHub access as a really big deal because that is published access now, too. They're tied together.
1: So a couple of things. One is that GitHub did this thing where they, so you can now give people access to just triage issues and close things and not fully commit to the repo. So that was one of the biggest reasons why we were like onboarding people so quickly into full commit access because it was like the only way to get help, like even triaging issues. The, the other thing is like, I, so I, I mean, maybe we just have different experiences with this, but I've been doing this for a long time too, just onboarding new contributors quickly. And all it ended up like with me is like, it deferred how much of a pylon I had in maintaining that project, but it just, increase the pylon for them asking me to release things because I hadn't handed over the release keys. And once you sort of um, like when request moved into an org and then broke out into a bunch of modules, like that also became painful because now it's not like NPM access to one thing. It's all of them. And they're, and obviously like for historical reasons, it's not in an org. So you can't do that. Like there's just, there's just a bunch of reasons why like this whole setup just gets annoying. (laughs) And um, if you can just like automatically publish anything. And if you're fairly confident because of the coverage checks that things, are good when they go out, I feel like it's just a much better setup.
3: Interesting, I kind of still wish there was a way to do some kind of a time delay between the git commit and then the, the publish so that like I could look through every day and just see like what is about to go out. I, I do like to, maybe it's because I'm into security a little bit, I, I'm like really paranoid about you know some terrible like worm or something affecting uh, my account or the modules I'm responsible for. <laughs>
1: So that shouldn't be too hard. So what you could do is you could, um, oh man, so, so now we're getting really into GitHub Actions. So um, you can do scheduled GitHub Actions that are like cron jobs, basically, that just run like in the cloud with all your repo code. So you could have one that, you know, say you wanted to just do weekly releases. Every week it would post an issue. And then the issue would say, hey, we're going to like pull this git hash and do a release of it. Here's everything in it. And then you would get an email about that. And then you would have basically 24 hours um, to decide like, you know, hey, hey, I'm actually gonna go do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> kind of like that actually. That's I might look into that. That actually sounds cool.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Michael, are the GitHub actions that you are
2: using right now, are those open source somewhere that folks could look yep. at if they're interested?
1: They're all in my GitHub. So GitHub.com slash M-I-K-E-A-L. They're all in there somewhere. A few of them are even published to the marketplace. Um, merge release isn't. I, I really need to get that one in there. I just haven't done the work to update the metadata. But like I wrote um GitHub Action for NPX. I wrote one to, uh, this is kind of cool, it will just push back into the repo any files that have been changed or added. So this is really useful, like, you can write these GitHub actions that go and, like, collect project metrics and stuff like that, or go out and, like, periodically grab information and then create a markdown file for view, right? So you can automate the creation of that every night, and then um, this GitHub action will just, you know, push anything that you've done in other actions. Building on that, I wrote another one that um, grabs your bundle size, so it'll, You know install webpack create a bundle gzip it look at the sizes and then put two badges into your readme and then push that So after every successful That basically so you put it at like at the end of all of your other stuff So, you know test pass publish blah 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 and then okay go and update the uh, The the current bundle size.
3: so so if I if I publish uh, if I do a commit that just changes the readme to fix a typo Is that gonna trigger a patch release automatically?
1: Yes, and I actually want that because um, that readme gets put into the f-ing NPM. <laughs> so, like, I've, I've run into cases all the time where, like, the docs are slightly out of date in NPM because, like, those were the only commits that we have and nobody wanted to do, like, a doc-only release. <laughs> but, like, th- those docs end up in NPM, so it's actually worth doing the release.
3: What about tests, though? Like, I change a test file. That's not ending up on NPM, but that's still going to do a patch release.
1: Well, if there's already 100% coverage, you usually don't have new tests added. That aren't like along with a feature or some other kind of code change. It's just it's rare, so I'm not so worried about that. I mean, you can just keep pumping these releases in. Like they don't. It doesn't matter.
3: I guess I'll. Just, I should just automate. I should just do a patch release of all my packages every day. Just all of them. Just, just, just <laughs> moving forward, chugging one one at a time, even though nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah. It's the latest and greatest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe instead nah, of I'm on just... a per project basis, you actually have a cron job that runs that looks at all of your projects. And if they need a release and post an issue about all of them that you can go through, <laughs> this could be like a set of personal automation for yourself. All
2: right. So this has been fascinating. I think it's a good time to take a little break and then we will come back. I think maybe loop back a little bit to more specifically node project structure and i'd I'd be interested i know you two have both talked a lot about packages and libraries but i'd be interested to explore the app side of things Um, so let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and dig in more
0: This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like droplets, spaces, Kubernetes, load balancers, block storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog.
2: welcome back and we are here again talking more and more about node project infrastructure now while i could probably listen all day to y'all jam on like how to better publish modules and best practices and using github actions and we will include a bunch of links in the show notes about that i do want to get back to this question of project structure and i'd love to explore a little bit like within the framework of shipping apps because like shipping packages and libraries is awesome and i think From what i'm hearing that's actually a big part of how you think about even apps but a lot of folks myself included spend much of our development time building you know apps whether it's a web app or it's an electron desktop app or it's something along those lines and you know maybe it's a robotics app uh, where you're you're programming some sort of circuit board to do something so you know node is everywhere so i want to kind of explore that and and maybe how this like module focus ends up playing out like it may mean that your core app has very little in it. It just has a main file of some sort. But I'm curious, is that something that either of you can have opinions or can draw on uh, to talk about?
3: I mean, I could I could talk a little bit about I mean, so the the, the, the thing is, it's so individual, there's so many ways to do this. And I, I don't want to claim that I know the best way. Uh, when it comes to apps, I very much I feel like I'm very much don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it feels like this stuff is still in flux a lot. And it's not as good as it should be and that we're getting, it's getting better and we're going to get to a better place at some point. But like right now, building an app, I mean, there's certain things that I think are are good that, you know, you should do. And there there's certain things I think are, okay, so uh, t- to be specific, so one thing that it was really great from the PHP days is the fact that you can just put files into a folder and then just FTP them up to a server. Just upload them to a server, and then your app was deployed. It was literally like as easy as just copying files up to the server.
1: Yeah, none of these routes and like all this pattern matching. No, like the file name is the URL, and that's how you call it. It's so simple.
3: Yeah, and I think there's some projects getting there. Like Next.js does this now. I think it's still not as easy as PHP because I mean it's it's a whole Node app, and there's still like you you can't just like with the PHP files, you could literally just put HTML, you know, in the file and upload it. And so it's, it's still not as easy, but it's, it's getting there. It's getting closer. I also think we're, we're solving a much harder problem today. Like we're trying to do a lot of times, uh, like both client-side rendering and server-side rendering. To get both of those to work, you have to make sure that all of your components like are isomorphic. They, c- they can run in the browser and on the server uh, equally well. So I don't know. My, my project, like m- my most recent project I've done is called bitmidi.com. And that's all open source. You can look at it. And I actually feel very much like while I did my best to make it understandable and uh, I'm pr- pretty proud of how it, how it turned out, I also think it's quite complicated and I don't know how to make it better. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best to t- talk about this. I'd actually like to hear from, from people who've, who think they
1: know what they're, what they're doing here. <laughs> yeah, well, BitMini mostly a front end. I think that like, the, the question was more specific to sort of back end, I think, with, like Node projects.
2: Well, one interesting thing there is I feel like the front-end frameworks, some of them, have started to instill this. And even if it's not core in the framework, um, they've created boilerplates with standards. So like Create React App started this, and then you have Next doing it in React World. And Vue, you know, Vue CLI has one structure. They've got Nuxt, which is very similar to Next, things like that. So like the front-end frameworks, perhaps because they are more commonly building apps and there's a more visible structure in terms of the URLs and things like that, they, they seem to have been pushing more strong opinions on structure. I was looking for an equivalent in the backend actually. And I, I don't know, is there like, does express have like a standard for how they lay things out in the file system?
1: No, not at all. Okay. So one of the reasons why front end frameworks do this is because they ship with, they have a kitchen sink approach. Like they ship with every feature ever and sitting there and configuring each feature and saying which of these things that you want to use is actually really problematic from a developer perspective. So one of the reasons why they they leverage all these patterns and all this sort of like structure by default stuff is because from that structure, they can infer a bunch of things that allow you to like not have to go and configure everything. The backend doesn't have as like, I don't know of any popular like kitchen sink backend framework, right? Like on the backend, everything is still going to be a lot of individual modules that you're going to wire together. I and mean, even some of the larger stuff like Express is, is actually you know, doesn't have a lot of these patterns because it's it's a fairly simple API. But based on sort of how you're going to deploy your application, you're going to have different structures based on that. So I think like if we talked about Next a little bit, another uh, product that Site does, so their cloud hosting provider called Now, and Now has this monorepo structure. It's actually quite nice and, and kind of similar to PHP, actually. And names of things can just be the URLs by default and stuff like that. Let's just define monorepo real quick because I've seen that like thrown around a lot. So in a normal sort of like a a smaller node package or or a smaller Python package or whatever, you would have like, you know, a package JSON or like a setup.py file, and then the source code for just that package. And it's just one package in one repository. The monorepo is several packages that are being developed in one repository. And so that is like a not great pattern for publishing modules into npm, there's like some really problematic behavior when you don't have like a one-to-one relationship between a repo and a module. But when you're building an application where it might have several different serverless endpoints or different services it needs to run as part of that application, it's actually really nice to do all of the development of all those services in one repository, so that you're not trying to coordinate between two repositories that have two different versions of a backend service and like one relies on the other one. And like, how do you do that? So this
3: is very anti microservices.
1: Well, I mean, all those microservices can be in that one repo, <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're orthogonal in some ways, yeah. If I have a dependency on two of these services, then they all need to go out at the same time as the my feature and and the only like thing that we have that has like a consistent hash for the entire state of the tree is a repo. <laughs> so, mm-hmm.
3: so then do you update all the microservices in lockstep?:
1: Yeah, yeah i I have a GitHub action <laughs> where unsuccessful push into master, it'll go and redeploy everything.
2: I've seen a monorepo set up with services that did not necessitate redeploying everything. It would sort of keep track of dependencies across them, uh, basically by having a strong concept of a public API and for each service and keeping track of when did that change. But it was more ad hoc than I, I think there were still people in that process, <laughs> right? It was not the, yeah, a fully CI-driven
1: scenario. Yeah, that's really painful. Like, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't recommend. Like, if you can associate a hash, a particularly, especially the hash of the repo, with a deployment, you can just do all of that on your own. Because then you can just look at when was the last time that anything in that directory changed and what was the hash of that commit? And then just compare it with the current deploy and know if you need to redeploy or not on any new check-in that happens. So it's easier to sort of build that kind of stuff on top of this, this hash-based structure than it is to, you know, try to make all of your developers really diligent about what public and private APIs are and you know if, if this change really impacts them and messaging all of that. Like once you're um, relying on humans for that information, it becomes highly problematic and it's as reliable as Semver version numbers are, which is to say, it's not. <laughs> not at uh, all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, Simver would be great if nobody ever shipped bugs. But it turns out that, like, people ship bugs in their software. <laughs> and so those patch releases could break things. <laughs> I love that quote. Semver would be great if nobody ever shipped bugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it would work perfectly.
2: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So actually, do you want to dig in a little bit on that monorepo then? So you talked about how essentially each file is associated with a url
1: it's actually a whole directory so like a whole directory would be like a service because that directory then needs a package json for all of its dependencies so and there, there's a few tools that you can use for that, that are going to push a structure like this on you similar to what front-end frameworks do so if you're using Zeit's service now they have a great utility that's like really simple and like just the dx on it is, is brilliant like if you're just coming to this i would highly recommend going that route and using their stuff. If you're using Lambda, there's a thing that Brian LaRue wrote called, um, it's an arc.codes. It's now like in the JS Foundation. It's a big open source project. But basically sets up a lot of the structure for you. And so you have both a directory of files that are shared between all of your backend services and then also a place for each of those backend services to live with their own package JSON file. And each of those get deployed to their own Lambda. And they have a whole setup for um having a staging environment and a production environment. Like you may not like that structure, and so you may not want to use that tool. Um, <laughs> but now that the the backend deployments are getting as complicated, they are imposing some of this structure the way that a lot of front-end frameworks do so
3: this is all this is all too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> my My setup is super simple. and I don't know if that's because like i I don't have a need for this for just the, the scale of problem solving or what, but like what I do is I have a Jenkins server, like old school literally a Jenkins server. And what it does is it just gets notified anytime I push to this Git repo. So then whenever I push to Git, Jenkins is like, okay, time to redeploy the website. So then what Jenkins does is it just SSHs into a server, Git pulls, and then restarts. It's basically what it's doing. It has a little bit more sophistication than that. So it can basically... But the point is basically what I'm doing is I have a server with a folder and then a note and I run node. It's, it's really simple. I really understand like everything that's happening. I love it. I love it. There's one server. If there's a problem, I can SSH in and I can look at it.
1: Okay. So for people that don't want to manage a server running Java and Jenkins and don't want to edit those XML files that you did like years ago to get all this set up.
3: So one thing you can do is you can use like I don't know, some other CI service, CircleCI or maybe a GitHub action honestly. Like if you cuz a GitHub action could easily SSH into your actual prod server, you could put the key in there in the secrets section that GitHub Action supports and it could deploy it for you. You wouldn't even need Jenkins actually. Actually, that's a great idea. I should get rid of Jenkins now. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I don't want to pay somebody for like, you know, whatever CircleCI or something like that. I, I just so I just I just use Jenkins. But yeah, I should get rid of that. But what I love about this is like I know that I have a single server that I can go to and that's where all the things are. And if there's any problems, they're gonna be there. I'm at this conference right now called Open Source Summit. And uh there's this uh what was the product? Somebody, I think it was Datadog. They were showing they were showing like a this crazy visualization of like a bunch of microservices being deployed and they were all little hexagons and they there was like thousands of them, and then they were like, look, we can like visualize like we can say show, show me all of the like microservices that that team is using or that that team is using. And there was like these thousands of hexagons flying everywhere into like clusters and stuff. And I was like, dude, that is insane. <laughs> <laughs> you have like thousands and thousands of these little things everywhere. How do you even know what's going on? Maybe I'm, I'm getting old or something, but that seems like craziness to me.
1: So um, again, like I'll, I'll plug Zite stuff a little bit more. They have this, this very brilliant setup that I don't know why other service providers don't do. But essentially, like whenever you do a deploy, whenever you push new code for a service, you get an URL that has a hash in it that is like just for that deployment. So there's no like, way to deploy to production. You do a deploy, you get a unique URL, and then at some point in time, you say, oh, you know what? I want that to be production now. And you like, re—you basically alias production to that. So this is a really nice setup because like, for local development, you can just keep pushing new URLs and testing them and looking at what happens. It's a really nice setup for CI because as things are coming into a pull request, if it wants to test against the live server, then it can just update, you know, this, um, t- this hash-based URL and test everything and make sure the production works with all of this new code. And then when something finally lands in master, there's actually already a GitHub action for Zeit that will just, you know, realias all the production to this new deploy, make sure that everything there is deployed, and then alias production to it. Can you debug that easily? Like, can you go
3: in and see what you know what's going on and poke around the server?
1: So it's, it's all in serverless architecture. So it's not like you can go and poke into the server itself, but Zite has a very nice log page that does log aggregation and CLI for the logs as well and like if if you've ever dealt with raw lambda before you you know how painful the logging setup is and and how this is like not a, a tiny feature also i've been working with cloudflare workers recently and there's no logs and like when you get, when you hit an error you get a 500 page that tells you nothing <laughs> so um, yeah yeah it's it's like it, so literally like the process of debugging it is redeploying And then in line, returning new responses with JSON objects, giving me my debugging information over HTTP, (laughs) because there's just no other way to get information out.
2: I haven't used it extensively, but I think Netlify has a similar type of setup where you can actually see each deploy. You know, every change can do a new build, generates a unique URL, and then you can decide what gets pushed to production.
1: Yep. Yep. That's the right setup. Like I'll, I'll like go out on a limb and just say like, that's the right thing to do. Like look, look at, look at the code in the repo, look at all the state that you're deploying, create some hash or unique identifier, and then like keep that, you know, make that available. Like, I, I really don't like this um, continual sort of um, pushing to a staging server. I don't really know what that means when multiple people are trying to work on something at the same time, um, or when you have like concurrent pull requests coming in that are trying to like work with that. Like that that system just doesn't seem to work for me.
3: For my system, anytime something lands on master, my GitHub repo, it just goes to prod. Yeah. It was, by the way, by the way, that setup actually makes it quite uh, fun when I get a PR from Greenkeeper that's like, "Oh, uh, we updated this dependency. All your tests pass." Uh, and I click the big green merge button. <laughs> that's, not, that's not just merging. That's actually me having a lot of faith because
2: that's, that's about to go out to production right now if I click it. Wow. I feel like I am way more paranoid <laughs> at these things than either of you two are.
1: I, I don't know how you guys deal with like, worrying about code getting into master and also worrying about code getting into releases. Like Worry about one thing, which is code getting into master. That's what I do worry about. Yeah, 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 no, that's like that's the right. I'm saying like I don't know why you're okay with this and not okay with automatically publishing modules when things go to master.
3: Oh, interesting. Yeah, (laughs) it's a good point
1: because it's it's effectively the same thing.
3: That's true. That's true. Yeah, I guess. Huh. So if I had to explain what the difference is, I would say it's. I guess most of these apps, actually, all the apps that I've worked on are just me. So it's like I put it on master, and then I just I don't need that extra step. I want it to go out. With modules, it's like I'm adding people I've never met in person to the repo. So I trust them, but I also trust them and verify. Like I don't, I don't trust them. I only trust certain, like a few people with the full, the full thing. But then most of the other people, it's just like just get access.
1: If that makes sense. Well, in these projects, do you have a policy where everything has to be a pull request and there's no just pushes to master?
3: Yeah, that's true. I do.
1: Yeah. Well, then you you can just make a GitHub action that will um, automatically fail the whole build. If uh, anybody does a push with it that, that didn't come from a PR. so then you're trusting in your PR process basically.
3: that's true. yeah. then th- then you can do you basically then you have to have two collaborators who are both who both turned evil in order to to compromise. Okay, so that's actually reasonable. I, I would accept that level of risk. okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like like some of this is taking some of the things that you already do socially and that you enforce by hand and turning them into automation.
3: Okay, that's cool. I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so this this podcast is basically Michael convincing me of his crazy ideas. I know.
2: I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh man, I have so many things I need to improve and aspire to. And one layer that, that I think about, or I have to think about a lot because I'm mostly doing work for clients that are apps, is there's like there's a UI testing and approval layer that is people who don't grok code. And so like that's where right now a staging environment happens. But the build per merge or commit and having a flow like that would solve that really well too. I'd just send that to them to test.
1: So like I've seen uh, people like this is insane. So Zeit has, um, a desktop utility where you can just drag and drop stuff into it and it'll give you a new, unique URL. So um, I've actually done this where I've taken like a slide deck and exported it as HTML and then just dropped it in there and then sent that URL to somebody that I just wanted to see that slide deck. And I didn't want to deal with like sending them a fucking keynote file or something. Yeah, it's actually like a really common workflow where like when you can easily get these unique URLs, like they're not really all that guessable. Um, like you, there's no way to get like a list of all of them um, unless you're authenticated. So they're, you know, relatively secure.
2: This may be going a little too far afield, but how do you deal with changes that involve data migration?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a big one. So this is my experience with it. And I think part of this is because like I, I now live in this content addressed space where um, everything is like all the data that you ever work with is like hash based and it's these hash Merkel structures. And you basically have to deal with data as long as people link to it. You don't, you don't really get to migrate the data. You just get to change how you interpret the data. <laughs> that sounds like a nice space to live in. Well, no, it's, it's I mean, it, this is much more problematic actually than the migration space. So, because if you have control over the data, you can just migrate it to the new thing and then like never worry about the old stuff again. <laughs> but like what I tend to do and how I tend to build these things though is that I will make it so that the setup works with both data sets, with the data in both kind of formats or ways. And then once that is working, I will push it and then at some point in time, maybe either write a migration script to move data over if I can do that or wait for people to just not be using that old data structure anymore and then migrate.
3: I think that that's how it works too in like the the centralized setup as well. You deploy code that supports both formats, and then at some point, you just run the migration script on the data and move it to the new format.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like a lot of people I, now that sort of you know These teams are working with a lot of like Lambda stuff and like a lot of kind of event based architectures. There's a lot more opportunities for you to just say, oh, okay, my thing is a new service and I have new data that's hanging off of the old data. And I just have a hook whenever any new data is created to put, you know, to mutate it and put it into this other thing. So, you know, these two things can live side by side for quite a while and be relatively consistent um, or, you know, optimistically consistent, I guess. You see a lot more. I see a lot lot of like bigger teams doing that a lot more. And I don't know if that's necessarily like, quote unquote, the best setup. But if you've ever tried to work with another team to do a data migration through like an infrastructure team, it's just a huge process. And so um, if you really want to get out a feature and try something, this is like a much faster flow that you can work with.
3: Yeah. I also just want to zoom out for a second and just also just mention that. This this is the thing that I worry about with, with some of these like discussions. Is it's it's always good that you know it's, there's probably a bunch of people who are listening to us talking about this now who are like oh, I gotta go and change my process now. I gotta I gotta do GitHub Actions because Michael said so. You know maybe that maybe you should do that, but but also like if what you're doing now is working and you have other higher priorities, like you don't have to drop everything. It's not like you know some huge problem that you have. Like if you know what I mean. Like my my process currently with my Jenkins server, even though you laugh at it, it actually works great. Uh, and so I'm not actually in a huge rush to go and change it. I just maybe, maybe if like, maybe if it breaks or I need to update it and it's really painful, maybe I'll decide at that point, ah, GitHub Actions, maybe it's time for me to look take a look at those again. But, you know, I'm not in some huge rush to to, to go and... Well, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I, I'm not, I'm not asking, but I, I, I don't think that it's all that interesting for like an audience to hear what your current setup is that you wouldn't do again today. <laughs> I think what they would like to hear is like a thing that they might do. <laughs>
3: It's really easy to like over engineer stuff too. Like you have to be careful. I'm not saying that's what you did, but but like like always listening to different podcasts and reading different blog posts about everyone's like thing that they just started trying out that they don't know any of the downsides to yet because they just started using it like two weeks ago and they're still really excited about it. And then you start to adopt all that stuff, then you eventually just end up with like a bunch of sort of stuff, a bunch of unexpected problems that you don't know like i i understand all the downsides of my jenkins server very well i know i know those problems it's great i don't have to like worry that i'm going to get some
2: unknown problem now that i don't know what to do with there's also a an aspect of rate of change right so because every new thing that you adopt has a learning curve and as you climb that learning curve you will make mistakes and cause problems for yourself and so if you're in a place now you don't want to try to adopt All the new things all at once, even if you know that you want to move in that direction, you want to pace things out. Um, I think we're actually, Michael, you had one more thing to say, but I think we're getting close to a break. This might be a topic worth an entire segment of like, how do I get there from here? Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that this is worth talking about right now because GitHub Actions have changed a lot of the sort of math of what the cost of adopting this stuff is. Like I was doing automated releases with semantic release for quite a while. And, you know, even with my load of dealing with releases for all these modules, I stopped using it at some point because there's, the complexity of managing it was, was too much. And a lot of that had to do with how complicated that script was, how it had to talk to Travis and then run another thing that ran another thing. Like all of these different services that talk to each other introduce additional breaking points and additional complexity and new dashboards to look at and all that kind of stuff. It's not really until GitHub Actions where This is all just in the same repo. It's a tab in the existing UI. It's just much, and and there's sort of an ecosystem around it too. So when people update an action and improve the code, you kind of automatically get that. A lot of the, the pieces are there now where you don't need to have a lot of like load on your time releasing your modules for it to be warranted for you to just like go and automate those releases because now it's like a lot easier to integrate but I don't think that that was true before actions.
3: We should call this Michael's uh, love letter to GitHub Actions, this whole episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by cross-browser testing of SmartBear, the innovator behind the tools that make it easier for you to create better software faster, if you're building a website and don't know how it's going to render across different browsers or even mobile devices, you'll want to give this tool a shot. It's the only all-in-one testing platform that lets you run automated visual and manual UI tests across thousands of real desktop and mobile browsers. Make sure every experience is perfect for everyone who uses your site and it's easy and completely free to try. Check it out at crossbrowsertesting.com changelog. Again, cross browser testing.com slash changelog.
2: Okay, let's get back into it and talk about how do we get there from here. So I mean, I have been just nerding out listening to the two of you talk. (laughs) There's so much awesome, cool stuff that is possible. And one of the crazy things I think, one of the things that Michael, you brought up in a previous episode was, because this is an ecosystem that's growing and, and very active, stuff is changing all the time, best practices are changing all the time. So I want to start or use this segment to pick your brains on how do you adopt change? How do you keep up? How do you move things forward? You know, if you are coming into this and you've been doing the same thing for the last five years, which as much as that sounds really painful, uh, particularly at the speed this moves, um, is I think not that uncommon, particularly if you've been working inside larger companies to just kind of be doing your thing. How do you adopt change incrementally? How do you reduce the risk? How do you kind of get there from wherever you happen to be? Um, so I'm going to throw that first to Michael as the most extreme example of being on the cutting edge of anyone I've talked to recently.
1: You know, how do you adopt change? So I usually, and I get better at this as like the, the more experience that I have, but I try to evaluate whether or not this is like a change in sort of a linear set of changes that we can expect to happen to like the whole industry or at least like the section of the ecosystem that you're involved in. Or if this is just like another option that people are exploring that may not have that long of a life cycle. Like a good example of that is like uh, CoffeeScript, right? Like a lot of people thought that that would be like the thing that they would continue using indefinitely. And um, that is certainly not the case today.
2: I blame it on the ternary mishap.
1: I, I mean, you can blame it on a lot of things, but I think the, the main thing is that the language caught up and the features in the language that were the most uh, interesting in terms of CoffeeScript, land in the language, and and all of a sudden the delta between them didn't really warrant an entire compile step anymore.
3: Do you remember Iced CoffeeScript? Yes, yes. Yeah, that was like, (laughs) it basically added like async await to CoffeeScript, right? Something like that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think, was that using like the the crazy, uh, there was like a fork of node that,
3: uh, no, I'd no, like, I didn't use fibers. I don't think so. Oh, okay,
1: okay, okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> man. Fibers, you just took me back. <laughs> took me back to like the the Node.js email list in like 2012. Um, okay, <laughs> so anyway, uh, don't look at the Node.js email list. It's a bad idea. <laughs> I don't even remember what we were talking about. <laughs> That's like how much that threw me back. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So processing change. So yeah. So if you know that something is sort of happening linearly or you're like really confident that it's a linear change and that you're not just like picking a different opinion or, or like a different sort of parallel track. It's always sort of good to just do the work of, of adopting that. Like the longer that you go without adopting it, the harder that it's going to be to adopt it in the future. And if whatever you're working on, you expect to be alive in the future, then go ahead and do that. Also, I would say that, you know, keeping things as, as smaller modules that do one thing makes upgrades a lot easier. I would say that that it's not universally true, though. It makes upgrading certain components easier when just those components change or you just find a new version. But for instance, like the the migration in, in all of Node's ecosystem from callbacks to async await is a very big transition. And the more modules that you have in like a big depth tree, the harder that transition is because you have to update all of them and you have to, you know, bubble up all of those updates. It's pretty painful. Um we're doing it right now in in IPFS actually and it's a huge effort. But at the end of the day, worth it because, you know, we know that things are moving in that direction permanently. And, you know, the we expect to be alive in the we expect this project to be, you know, used by more people in the future, not less. And so we should definitely take that on that kind of change.
2: So a couple of things I'd love to dig in on that. But one is just like how do you determine or make that distinction between this is a linear set of changes as you described it, that's going to impact the entire industry versus a parallel option, right? People thought CoffeeScript was the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, so at the time, you you could believe that a little bit easier because TC39 was doing roughly nothing um, and hadn't put out much in a while. That's no longer the case, though, right? So you can tell what the future of the language is based on what they're doing. And if you wait to adopt things until they're at least finalized in terms of specs and implemented a few places, then you're pretty safe to know that that's like where the JS language is going, for instance. You'll still have cases where a feature may ship and then people will just sort of decide not to use it. That's certainly a possibility. Um haven't quite seen it yet, but we've certainly seen it with older syntax. Like nobody uses the with statement, for instance, right? Like that's you know maybe minifiers but like generators also aren't that really that common right generators are relatively new and generators sort of suffered from the problems that node had um so i think the generators would have been much more popular if node had not stagnated completely at o.10 because it wasn't until o.12 which not many people adopted because it was never really stable um that they were even available behind a flag And then basically the the version of V8 right after that, they came out from behind that flag. And so they were available in browsers for years while Node was like not shipping. And then when we did IOJS and put out the first IOJS release, it was just there by default. And all of a sudden like the generator, the people in the generator community were super happy with that. So that had kind of like a lag in adoption. So people haven't been able to use them as long as you would sort of think. And then also until async generators, which like just in the last major release of Node did not print a warning when you use them. Could you really do like a lot of the async stuff that you actually want to use generators for? Um, there's not a ton of uh, compute-only things that you really need the efficiency of a generator for, and that you can't just like, you know, use one of the the many like array methods for, for instance, right? Mm-hmm.
2: That makes sense. What about things like, for example, the new publishing policies or GitHub Actions or things like that? You know, those are stuff what you know in a, our previous segments sounds like michael you're really pushing the boundaries on that really using that for large numbers of things whereas for us you were highlighting you know a sort of a sense of resistance and concern about security and things like that like how would you approach you know if you're in that position where say for example you manually deal with your releases right now maybe you're doing some amount of ci automation but you know you make that decision manually and you listen to this and you hear michael saying hey Push it all the time. your gate should be on approving your PR. If it gets merged, it gets released. Um, how would you go about sort of managing
1: the risk of making that change? I can maybe help you out here a little bit. I hope. <laughs> um, so like I think that what what you may be interested in is it's not just like it's a code change or a process change. There's a bunch of other implications to that process change and a bunch of other secondary effects that you have because of the initial process. And it takes some work to understand what all of those are, right? Like your notes about like other contributors having access to, you know, commit and not publish, like that's, it basically changes the permission model.
3: Yeah. Like I, I've i added some people to the standard JS repo that did translations, for example, they translated the readme. And like, I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying they're not trustworthy. They probably are, but it's just, just from a security, you know, uh, minimal access, you know, uh, defense in depth all that kind of all the good security practices you don't want to give somebody access that they don't need so they would probably need to need to switch to uh like a to a different permission but the problem is yeah i guess they could still send prs uh and they could do triage or whatever but they they wouldn't they shouldn't get a commit bit i think in that situation yeah
1: or or you can change the workflow a bit so that you know if uh, if somebody tries to merge their own pr or they try to push without a pr that it gets rejected you can like you know automate some of the other things to to satisfy these same needs and not just like adopt this you know right away
3: right Uh, one thing i like about github actions stuff is i think i could adopt like i I think probably if i were to adopt this what i would and i'm probably going to i wanted to make the point about thinking about stuff carefully before just uh jumping on the bandwagon but i i I mean i think this is probably something i'm gonna i'm gonna adopt i would probably start by trying to eliminate parts of the jenkins stuff so all jenkins does is in my situation is it just sort of listens for, you know, git pushes and then it runs a command on a, on a server. SSH SSHs in and runs a, runs a script, basically. So that seems pretty easy to just put into a GitHub Action. So I'd probably start by picking one website, like BitMidi or something, and then just saying, I'm going to use uh, GitHub Actions to deploy it. And then if it works out nicely and it doesn't cause any problems, then I'll just, uh, at some other point, I will swap over, like, all the sites to do that, all, all the sites I manage, not just, uh, not just that one. But I would test it on one first. One other thing I would do is I like to balance between different kinds of work. So if if I find myself doing a lot of meta work like this and not enough like real work, it can be kind of demoralizing to to get sort of caught up in just like, I'm just porting stuff from callback pattern to promises pattern and I'm doing like all this meta like repo management and like setting up GitHub actions. If I was doing that for like a week or two, that'd be kind of, um, that'd be too much. <laughs> so I would what I'd try to do is like pepper in a little bit of like I've been actually shipping some stuff and then ah okay now is a chance to like improve process a little bit and just sort of mix the two together So I'm always improving process a little bit constantly, you know, and and not just doing it in this one big Sort of push Uh, that's just like a riskier way to do it and also just motivationally for me. It's not as yeah, it's not as nice
1: Yeah, so I got into this habit like maybe 13 years ago when, when I worked at the open source applications foundation because like we, we were building this personal information manager and we were thinking really deeply about like how people do their work and what their process is and I was and so I, I basically cut out like half a day a week where I, all I would do is think of like test out new tools to like manage my workload and like, you know, to do lists or you know, like how am I triaging my email? Like is there a better way to do that? And so like it was just all my sort of personal workflow stuff. And, you know, I don't like set aside like on my calendar anymore, like a half a day, but it's just like in my head now. And so I think that I probably spend roughly a half a day a week just doing things that are going to like pay off in the future (laughs) in terms of workflow. And I think that that's that's generally a good process. I think that people don't do that enough.
3: That's awesome. Yeah, I like it. That sounds like about the right amount too. like half a day a week. That sounds good. Yeah.
1: yeah. Also, I would say, like, when you're taking on something new like this, do it in a new project or a project that, like, is smaller and more recent first, right? Like, there's no reason to, like, you know, take on the biggest thing first. And, and also, like, this may not be solving, like, a, a problem that you have and it's just, like, an improvement that you want to make. So don't port it onto another project that actually does have problems and be like, this is your solution, even though it's completely unrelated. Like, I, I hate it when people are, like, you know, like, somebody will say, like, you know, oh, man, like, I have my PHP site on this $5 droplet, but like it's starting to max out the CPU and the memory and And people be like, rewrite it and go. (laughs) Rewrite it and rust, right? Like, and it's like, no, like sign into Cloudflare and and cache it. (laughs) Like, and then all your problems are going to go away. Upgrade
3: it to a $10 droplet instead of a $5 droplet. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, caching solves like most performance issues, actually. (laughs) Like people really obsess about like the, the most performant like compute patterns, but like unless you're doing ml just caching please like caching solves most things
2: yeah so that's that sounds like great pieces of advice so pick a project at a time don't do one that has real problems this isn't solving one of those real problems <laughs> yeah um and i really like uh your point michael of carving out time to invest in improving the process and carving out time so it's not your like you're spending all your time on it in chunks like as for as mentioned that would completely burn me out uh yeah i Yeah, I'm trying to imagine spending two weeks on entirely GitHub Actions and workflow automation, and it would—I would scream. I would just—I would be done. But half a day a week sounds very doable, and that probably adds up very quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, people do a lot of investment in themselves they'll set a time side time to write books or read sorry read books and and stuff like that and um it's surprising to me how many people don't sort of think about their their workflow generally like in their everyday work and improvements they could make to that on the same kind of rigorous schedule that's just generally i think a good practice um, especially if you're a programmer another thing too we were talking earlier about how even when we have an application, we'll take the hardest problems and break them into these modules. One of the cool things about that is that you might have this really big task that's going to take you like a month. But when you start to break it into these small modules, you get a lot of like small accomplishable things that really give you a sense of <laughs> like progress over time. Like you get to, to like, you know, sit for a minute and go like, oh, cool, I did that. That works now. I'm done. And move on to the next thing. And also it gives you a really good idea of what your actual timeline is, because if one of those stretches out, you know, that the whole thing is stretching out. I feel like a lot of times people take on these big, massive projects, and when you do them all as one big thing and one big repo, you don't have enough sort of check-ins and wins, and you just kind of burn out halfway through.
3: Totally. 100%. Yeah. It's important to have regular wins, regular like achievements, regular momentum, visible progress.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, and when it comes to adopting new practices and workflow automation, I imagine there's a very similar thing, right? Like, okay. I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to try GitHub Action for XYZ and that's it. And that's a project. (laughs) And (laughs) then you can celebrate when you finish it and all those other fun things. All right. Anything else y'all want to close on?
1: No, nothing that I can think of. I think we covered it all. Yeah, I've convinced Faros to adopt everything that I do pretty much. So. I know. Yeah, so for us, I'm going to be
2: looking for a uh, massively increased pace of minor releases with readme updates and other oh, things. Man. Awesome. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Michael. Uh, this has been a super fun episode, and I hope you, the listener, enjoy it as much as I did because I'm just sitting here, sitting back, taking in this knowledge. It's amazing. All right.
3: I feel like we, do- we got a little into the weeds repeatedly there because we're just like, oh, remember this <laughs> random thing from back in the day? But hey. Hopefully- <laughs> we did that once. <laughs> hopefully people don't mind that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Y'all
1: have very
2: interesting weeds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like one of these, it's been like 10 years since Node came out. I feel like we should get some of like the people that have been around the whole time and just do like a long, like maybe like multi hour, just like talk about like each of these different things that happened and all the stories in there. Cause it was, it, it was a, it's been crazy. Like a lot of crazy stuff happened in there. Let's do it. All right. I'm looking at you to organize, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's been long enough too that you can probably talk about some more stuff now, right? Like the politics is, is more in the past
1: I mean more like I I no longer run the Node Foundation so I'm not responsible to the members anymore and I can talk about whatever I want but uh, that's the main thing that's changed alright let's do it that sounds like a good episode
2: let's do it All right, you heard it here first coming soon to a JS Party episode behind the scenes (laughs) at Node over the last 10 years uh, I'm going to hold you to this, Michael. You're to We're going to make this happen.
1: It's going to take a while to get all of those people to agree on a time slot together, especially if we want to get Ryan. <laughs> all
2: right, let's make it happen. You, the listener, you want to make this happen. Harass Michael on Twitter or somewhere else and say, when is it going to happen? But uh, all right, sounds good. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, listeners. We'll catch you next week at JS Party.
0: Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor, share this show with a friend. or does just have a podcast, go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno cloud servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.